Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brody Meyer, and this is WHBC Radio, where we interview unique business individuals and get a great insight into their lives. This week's guest is my advisor and friend, Tom Eggleston. He's done everything from winning an Emmy Award for sports production to starting an automotive company that sold for $100 million. He's been the CEO of multiple companies that have led to exits, including an IPO with Amway in 1993. Tom's also been disruptive in the medical industry with Interactive Metronome and even made his way into real estate as the CEO of C.P. Morgan. Currently, he splits his time between a property management company called Renew Management and his Midwest venture fund, Carmody's Capital. Tom is definitely somebody that you should fuse with at some point on the FuseMe mobile app. I can't wait to share his story with you, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Tom Eggleston. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. <laughs> How you doing today? Good, thanks. Um, so we start off the show with like something real light, it's like a warm up to get you to get you ready. And today I have three questions that are true or false, and I'd like to see if you answer them correctly. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Number one, lightning never strikes the same place twice. True. False. <laughs> false. It strikes. It strikes in the same place quite a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, tricky one, right? You got two more coming your way. Come on. So, yeah. Bring it. All right. So, number two, if you cut an earthworm in half, both halves can regrow their body. True. False. <laughs> Come on, Tom. <laughs> so, I, I guess only one half of the earthworm can regenerate when it's cut in half. Yeah. I was just trying to look up some. Some brain awesome. teasers for you. Yeah, and then, all right, last one. Buzz Aldrin was the first man to urinate on the moon. False. That's true. <laughs> Tom, so Jeopardy yeah, has yes. never been my best sport. No, that's that's fine. It was a good warm-up. We got you laughing, and yeah, that's what it's meant to do. But cool. Um, now that you're warmed up, I, kinda, I just want to jump in to who Tom Eggleston is. Um, I'd love to... Indianapolis community to hear more about you and I mean you're very well known but younger generation kind of and um I think they'll love it so you've had a very impressive education that's included an undergraduate degree from uh, economics degree from Dartmouth while you played collegiate basketball and then a law degree from the University of Virginia School of Law what made you choose going into law at the beginning of your career my dad is a lawyer and started the firm Ball and Eggleston in Lafayette. So I've been around the practice of law. He was a litigator, which was my dream. I also participated in high school debate at West Lafayette High School. So that was part of the early oratorical training gotcha. that influenced uh, my enjoyment of speaking and presenting. So it was natural to do that in a courtroom. Very cool. So you, um, you've been around Indiana for your entire life then? Well, those uh, seven years in uh, New Hampshire and Virginia, came back to Indiana to practice law. And then nine years later, took a leave of absence to join the Pan American Games Organizing Committee, which was such a significant event for Indianapolis and really was a pivot for my career into international business. I was actually going to jump into that right after that. And... Um, 
it sounds like that was like just an incredible experience, and you, you ended up winning an Emmy. For, we did. That's crazy. So well, the story long. behind it is is more hilarious. CBS Sports was unwilling to bid enough of a rights fee for the 26 hours of coverage that they planned to air. And we needed the money because it was a very tight budget and we were sworn not to leave a deficit. So in the negotiations, Neil Pilson was the president of CBS Sports. I said, what if the organizing committee served as the host broadcaster, meaning we would produce the signal using our own equipment, our own staff, and all you have to bring, no trucks, no broadcast center equipment. Imagine 26 hours of primetime coverage with 29 sports. (laughs) And he said, well, if you can do that, we'll pay you the gross amount with no offset for our expenses. And that number was sufficient for us to be crazy enough to try and put on that games broadcast ourselves and because we were the host broadcaster and did not screw it up we won an emmy that's incredible (laughs) very cool um and after that experience in 1987 you started your career in the automotive industry as vp and general counselor for um, ransburg and that was acquired by itw in 1989 how'd you get involved in automotive It was a technology company that was international and was here in Indianapolis. So for me, it was a way to take all the travel I had done in the Pan Am Games and use it in a business setting. The most interesting travel was to Havana, Cuba. A small group of us met with Fidel Castro and pitched him on bringing a full Cuban delegation. He had the best boxers in the world, some of the best baseball players, great track and field. And for me, I was responsible for selling TV and radio broadcast. And now with the Cuban athletes, we could sell soccer, boxing around the world. So it became very lucrative for us. And we then promised him that we would help him organize a bid to host the 1991 Pan Am Games, which he, in fact, bid for and won. That's incredible. So (laughs) how did that end up leading into, so it was a tech company and it led into ITW, or how, how did that well, occur? Well, interesting, uh, quirky story. <clears throat> there were four poorly performing divisions of Randsburg, and then the core paint finishing business, which did well. And the board decided when I joined that I would be responsible to sell those four divisions, but in the meantime, I was responsible to run them. So here, I would come from organizing sports, not running industrial companies. But it thrust me into that role right away. We eventually sold those four divisions and closed a joint venture with Renault, building robots. And suddenly the stock skyrocketed because now we were performing well and we became the target of a hostile takeover. So then we had to find a white knight, so-called, meaning a friendly company that would be a good strategic fit and not a hostile takeover, and that became ITW. That's really cool. Very, very interesting. Um, after a few years in the auto industry then, you jumped into a role as chief operating officer at Amway, and eventually led to an IPO of Amway Asia Pacific in 93, 
increased global revenues 300% to $6.3 billion. During your leadership, what led you to that type of success at Amway? And how, how did the how did your experience, your previous experience, lead into that? You know, again, there was the international component, and that I'd worked at a public company. Amway was completely private, and that presented major estate planning challenges for the two founding families. So, as part of my recommendation, I said, keep the parent company private, but let's take distribution arms public. So initially, we took Amway Japan public, then. Amway Asia Pacific, primarily to build factories in China. So that strategy allowed us to sell small amounts of equity, raise a lot of capital, not have to borrow money, but do it through the capital markets. And then I became the public company CEO responsible for earnings and all the performance while also running the private company parent. How did you get um, involved with Amway? It was a Spencer Stewart search. So they went out nationwide and looked for candidates and uh, interviewed. And it was you. <laughs> that's, that's great. In 95, you actually founded um, Drivers Mart Worldwide in Florida, Fort Lauderdale. And it sold to AutoNation for $100 million. Only three years later, um, you seem to move very quickly. Why, is, why was AutoNation so attractive to Drivers Mart? Story really goes back to the recession of 1991 when car makers, who had only been leasing luxury cars up till then, to keep their factories busy, decided to lease two and three year leases for every car, every make and model. But at the end of those leases, suddenly you had all this product and there was no room on the used car lot of normal dealers because they used their lots merely to recycle trades. So first CarMax and then AutoNation built these giant used car superstores. And I was invited to visit one of them and give my critique. And I said, doesn't your profit as a car dealer mainly come from parts and service? And how do you ever find technicians that can repair all these different vehicles. So we conceived of an idea to have the 25 best new car dealers in the U.S. join together in a venture called Drivers Mart. And they would do the parts and service business in their own dealerships, not in our used car store. So it became a channel from the store back to their dealerships for them to capture these high margin opportunities. And we built 16 stores. We had another nine under construction. When AutoNation came along and said, we really like your model yeah. and bought us. How do you move so quick? You know, <laughs> it's only three years. <laughs> but... Well, it was important to have partners. So Ford okay. Motor Credit provided the financing on the vehicles. And they were doing private label financing for car sales. So that was critically important. Aon, an insurance company, was doing warranties, and we needed a warranty on these three-year-old vehicles. And both of those two activities generated roughly $200 a car to fund our business. So we were able to, in effect, solve the puzzle, and through using well-established partners, none of whom we had to staff or pay for, mm -hmm. but they were cash generating to us. It was the perfect fit.
incredible. Love it. We're going to take another quick break. Another trivia game. All right. I think you'll like this one a little better. <laughs> now you're a big Pacers fan. Yes. All right. Some Pacers trivia. So, are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one. I'm going to give you a question and then four answers. Four, you know, and you can choose which one. So number one. What year did the Pacers become a team? 1962, 1967, 1976, or 1980? 1967. Spot on. That's right. <laughs> Very cool. So, uh, number two. The Pacers moved from the State Fairgrounds Coliseum to a new arena in 1974. What was the name of the arena? Banker's Life, Lucas Oil, Market Square Arena, or Conseco Fieldhouse? Market Square Arena. All right, right on. Two for two. Uh, we're going to go over to this one. Um, who was drafted by the Pacers in 1987 that brought a change to the fortune of the team as they made it to the playoffs several, several times in the 90s? Reggie Miller, Steve Alford, George McGinnis, or Larry Bird? Reggie Miller. You got it. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to... Famously not Steve Alford, as it turned out. Uh-huh. I have a feeling you're going to really crush the rest of these. Um, <laughs> we're going to go with what was Larry Bird's nickname? The Bird, The Hick from French Lick, LB, or Captain? The Hick. You got it. And the final question of this amazing, difficult quiz I have for you today. <laughs> what was Banker's Life Fieldhouse called before it was re renamed in 2011? Market Square Arena, Conseco Fieldhouse, the Coliseum, or Hickory? Conseco. You got it. That was better than splitting yeah. the worm in half. Yeah. <laughs> you really know your pacers. <laughs> Not so much about the earthworms. Not no. so much. <laughs> All right, back into a few serious questions about your life. Um, pretty excited for these ones. See, you're, you weren't done yet. After the automotive industry, you you kept rolling. <laughs> after being with both um, ITW and Drivers Mart, you jumped into the medical industry in 2001 by founding Interactive Metronome in Sunrise, Florida. This medical device company has since surpassed helping over one million patients. What led you down the medical road at this point in your life? It's truly a miracle. A producer for Bob Dylan had developed a way to train musicians to gain perfect timing as a way to solve the analog problem of mixing music using contracted musicians who didn't have the same perfection as the artist. He then approached the Developmental Learning Center where our son Jim had just started taking piano lessons. Jim was born with multiple complications at birth and they proposed that Jim start the training with the music producer. Fifteen sessions later, Jimmy was able to take his walker to the side and walk the length of our basement floor with a prosthetic leg, dislocated hips, no ligaments in his left knee, and my wife Kathy and I are in tears. So we then financially supported and uh, really backed this incredible research effort that took more than eight years. Critical was finding Stanley Greenspan, who was at NIH in Chevy Chase, Maryland, whose 
one of his patients had been through the training and he called me one night and he said, I know you're not medically trained, but the prefrontal cortex of the brain is where the function called timing, sequencing, and planning happens. It's otherwise known as the executive function. And we've been searching for some way to impact it through repetitive brain training. And I think you found it. Wow. So 17 published studies, peer-reviewed journal published studies across a number of different medical conditions have now established it as a well-accepted um, that's brilliant. <laughs> very exciting. Very exciting. So primarily two categories, pediatric cognitive disorders, so speech language deficits, learning deficits are benefited, and then adults who are recovering from stroke and brain injury to improve their balance and gait. All of that is controlled in the prefrontal cortex, and so this timing training system improves that performance substantially. That really is amazing. Very cool. Um, at this time now in your career, you've been in involved, <clears throat> involved in law, television production, automotive industry, the medical industry, and even academia at one point as an adjunct professor. Then you decide to get into real estate as the CEO of C.P. Morgan and helped, the, helped it grow to become the seventh largest private home builder in the U.S. and you won the Apex Award from Big Builder Magazine. What kept you going at this point? You know, you've been involved in so many things. You know, the DNA of growth, leveraging technology, generally with a disruption in the market, have been the components of this very disjointed professional career. <laughs> and the chance to take just-in-time and lean manufacturing and apply it in the job site was so appealing and in the go-go days before the mortgage industry meltdown occurred in 2008, 2009, we were able to wring out so much expense that was unnecessary. We could build an additional bedroom or a big family room for families that would otherwise not be able to afford it. And then we switched that learning over to the post-recession environment of demand for single-family homes as rentals. And that became the Renew business after home building. So currently you're, you spend your time at Renew Management. It's a real estate SaaS platform for fund portfolios of single family homes. And you split it between uh, being a managing director at Carmody's Capital, which is a mid Midwest venture fund whose portfolio boasts impressive organizations such as um, Hyde Park, Venture Partners, M25, Sigster, Amplify, Demand Jump, and Bolstra, and more. Um, where do you see the next big opportunities in tech startup space? Um, specifically, like you said, in disruption, this is something that has been very evident throughout your career, um, and you've been able to apply it to industries spanning you know, medical to home building. What, what's the next space? Real estate is so interesting because the data is important, and the historical closed transactions or sales data is not generally available. So as a broker, we were a member of each of these MLS boards and could access the data. 20 million records in our database. And so we use algorithmic formulas to select the most relevant comps to establish fair market value, both the value of the asset as well as the projected rent value for the five-year pro forma of how the house will perform as an asset. Now taking 
artificial intelligence and machine learning and applying to these big databases will allow us to have a predictive aspect where we can determine before we buy the house which houses will increase in value the most, where the rent growth will occur, and that becomes an even more suitable purchase. So it's really taking the IT tools and applying them into a space that is traditionally thought of as pretty manual. What a broker does in a brokerage in front of an MLS screen is largely a manual process that we've completely automated. We then use our regional presidents to quality control every comp selected because ultimately real estate's local, but it's a very unique approach to solving this Definitely. huge scale-up challenge of bringing these big portfolios of rental houses into ownership by these large capital groups. Definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next 30, 40 years of your career. You've, you've already done <laughs> insane amounts. It's, it's very cool to see. Um, well, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Brody. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. My name's Brody Meyer, and this was WHBC Radio, brought to you by the FuseMe mobile application. For those of you who do not know, WHBC stands for We Hate Business Cards. Please check out our mobile app on the app store called FuseMe. FuseMe is a business tool eliminating the business card while bringing back the human-to-human connection that we find ourselves missing in this era of social media. Thanks again for tuning in. Keep your eyes peeled for more podcasts, and remember, we hate business cards.